it seems like the the law itself envisions almost a non literal application of this total destruction uh the the book kind of concedes the point that the conquest so-called conquest was actually a process a long process of settlement and that actually fits with the archaeological record of of israel's emergence and appearance in the land with the exception of jericho and i all the battles that israel fought were defensive Today I'm on with Dr. Matthew Lynch. We're talking about the Canaanite conquest. Is it immoral for God to command the Israelites to kill innocent children? All these people, did they deserve it? Dr. Lynch thinks he has a resolution to all these questions today. How are you doing today, Dr. Lynch? I'm doing well, Zach. Um, good to be back with you. Awesome. Great to, great to hear you again. So, uh, could you give us a really quick intro? Most people know who you are. On Script Podcast, really great stuff. Uh, really quick uh, intro, who you are. Sure. I uh, teach uh, Old Testament at Regent College here in Vancouver, and I've been here for about three years. Before that, I was in England at a place called Westminster Theological Center. And uh, yeah, love um, love the Old Testament and writing about it, studying it, teaching it, um, and married, have two kids, and yeah. Awesome. Good stuff. Okay. Now, we're here to talk about your book, Flood and Fury, correct? Uh mm -hmm. Can you give us just you know quick intro of what it's about? Sure. Um, so, Flood and Fury comes out of kind of a long time wrestling with questions around violence in the Old Testament that came from me, but also from students as well. Um, but also a dissatisfaction with some of the approaches to violence in Scripture. Um, I think there's almost like two polar opposite but related tendencies in in some contemporary literature on violence in the Old Testament. And, and one is a high, highly apologetic tone. Um, so responding to the, you know, perhaps, you know, the audience in mind is someone like the new atheists who probably aren't reading that literature anyway, but it's like the people who wonder how to respond to new atheists. And and so the the response can be just as dogmatic as the new atheist critique. Hmm. Um, and and then on the other extreme, there are approaches. So the, I guess some of those approaches then will either try to make the problem of violence go away or um, just say that basically if we took sin seriously enough, we would realize that God has, a, you know, we're lucky to be alive at all. And so because God has has the right over life and death, then who are we to question God's ways in dealing with the people during the flood or the Canaanite conquest or something like that? Um, and then uh, I would say there's another sort of predominant approach, which is Christocentric or even crucicentric. And, and that approach tends to highlight the ways that that if you look at the cross as the definitive and fullest revelation of God, you'll see that God is fundamentally nonviolent. And so um, we need to reread texts in the Old Testament until they look like the cross or until they uh, yield an outcome that's uh, basically affirming what we see revealed in Christ on the cross. And I'm largely in agreement with that, but um, there are real, real problems with that as well. Um, so we could get into that, but I, 
I, so you have like approaches that I think either dogmatically or doggedly defend the Bible or on the other hand, make the problem go away. And, and I wanted a, an approach to the problem that dealt with the full complexity of the biblical text. Because the Bible is surprisingly nuanced when you read it carefully and closely and get into the history, genre, literature, um, discussions that biblical scholars are having already. And I felt like that, the goods from that hadn't fully been brought to bear on the question. It's not to say they, they never had. Um, but I, I wanted a, a sort of multi-approach approach to the, the question of violence that accommodate or that allowed for scripture to be its complex self. Uh, but in a way that was accessible to readers. Um, so that's what I'm attempting in the book. And there's a, a section at the end of the book where I talk about uh, the character of God. So I wanted to pan out as well and reflect on um, that more fundamental question of who can, is this a God we can trust? Is this a good God? And to talk about like how we might go about answering that question in light of the violent text. Um, so that that's as much about offering a response um, as it is about suggesting an approach to going about answering that question. Um, having, having stared at the problem of violence, you know, you can almost get dizzy uh, staring at that problem. Um, so then what, what do you do? Where, where do you go from there? Right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, what would you say are the biggest problems, like specifically with I guess the the morality of mm -hmm. you know God I guess killing people or telling people yeah. to be killed all that what would you say the biggest problems are there in the Canaanite conquest? Um, with regard to the conquest, I, I'd say that the the biggest issue is um, the implementation of the command not to show mercy to one's enemies, and so and the totality of the destruction that seems to be enacted in some of the text. And, and, and so I think people, um, with the exception of those who are pacifists, I think in general, people can like get their heads around the idea of, of um, justice being meted out in some way uh, against people who have committed particular offenses and not their children or grandchildren, right? Um, but against those who are, say, you know, culpable for horrific murder, you know, in theory, you could imagine uh, a response to that. But in, in this case, what we have in the conquest is, is God enacting some kind of, you could call it judgment, although the book itself doesn't, um, against men, women, children, and animals. It's, so the totality of it and, and also the implementation of this command not to show mercy so you have extreme violence that God then um, chooses Israel to enact on his behalf. So the flood story is another story I deal with in that book. And in that case, it's God's own violence that's the problem. Uh, but here you have God outsourcing it to Israel and calling his people to enact this against, against the Canaanite people. So I think, I think that's the, the main issue in, in the book of Joshua, the totality, the brutality of it, um, and and also the seeming praise for callousness um, that that the book um, 
well, I would say that Book of Deuteronomy suggests and that Joshua then has the people implement. Hmm, for sure. And if, any, if anyone wants to see the uh, Dr. Lynch's thoughts on the flood and Cain mm -hmm. and Abel, you can check yeah. our previous interview on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Lynch also talked about uh, creation and the idea of mm -hmm. whether there was death and chaos before or during creation, yeah. all that kind of stuff, which is really interesting. Definitely recommend mm -hmm. checking out the book. So specifically on what you just said, yeah. um, I mean, there there seems to be debate about why God wanted Harim. Uh, you know, you can define that however you want. Mm -hmm. Why mm -hmm. God wanted Harim to, Harim to happen? Can you yeah. talk about how you attempt to answer that? Yeah. So th this is um, this is one of those things I struggled over in the book to figure out exactly how to present it in a way that that's accessible because it involves like several. There are several layers to the issue of the implementation of harem, um, which is this. Hebrew term haram is the verbal form, um, talking about um, total or complete destruction or removal. Um, so in Deuteronomy, the command is given first. Um, and it's not the first time the term appears, but it's the first time it appears as a, as a formal command with regard to the Canaanites, which is interesting because it's not the first time God is giving Israel directives about what he wants them to do with the Canaanites. So back in Exodus, they're commanded to go in and destroy the altars, the pillars, the the images, and so on. Um, and also God says that he would drive out the Canaanites. So that's what we get in Exodus. Um, and they're not to intermarry with them and so on. And so when you get to Deuteronomy, that command intensifies. And I think as a, as a reader, we should sort of um, ponder that, right? Like, what is Deuteronomy doing by heightening this command to the level of, you know, threat level red, such that the, the Canaanites now have to be annihilated completely down to the last man, wo woman, child, and animal? You know, if this is about justice, how, where's the justice in that? What did the animals do? <laughs> um, so, so they're all, the, the, Deuteronomy has this powerful, punchy, no holds barred um, rhetoric, and I think that like that's where we have to just pause for a moment and think about think about the the literary genre, the kind of literature that Deuteronomy is. And this is this is Moses, the more fiery preacher, trying to urge loyalty to the covenant among the people who are about to go in the land, and so. At the very least, we have to acknowledge that this is a piece of rhetoric, um, and and not and and not over literalize it, such that we lose the the force of the like what it's intended to do. And in context, Deuteronomy seven, um, where the command is given, it's set in in juxtaposition to total commitment and loyalty to Yahweh. So this is really ab about embracing Yahweh without any divided loyalties and then forsaking everything that might threaten that. And, and interestingly, the command itself in Deuteronomy 7, if you dig into that text itself, it, it says, after you're settled in the land, this is what you should do with the Canaanites. Um, so it's actually not meant to be 
read as the means by which they enter the land, but something they do once they're settled in the land. So that little detail is interesting. Also, uh, the law reads, if you go through it, uh, the passage Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 5, verse by verse, it says, um, you know, you should wipe them all out. And then it says, this is how you shall deal with them. And them in that instance refers back to the Canaanites. And then it goes on to say, and I'm not quoting it literally, but exactly. Um, it goes on to say, you're to tear down all their altars, pillars, and images, um, you know, hew them down and burn them with fire, and you shall not intermarry with them. And as a number of people pointed out, it's hard to intermarry with people that you've annihilated. You know, so that that's uh, uh, a moot point. So it seems like the, the law itself envisions almost a non-literal application of this total destruction, as if to say, wipe them out completely, in effect, by wiping out their images and altars and pillars and so on. Um, so, so there's this kind of tension within the law, like you're not sure whether it's, it's meant to be read lit literally or not. Um, because it's a heightened it's heightened rhetoric and because the law itself has that layer of complexity to it. Then you move to the book of Joshua, and the book does portray this law having been literally applied to actual Canaanites. Um, and or it so it seems at first. So they're they go in, they run their swords through everyone in Jericho except for Rahab and her family. Um, and same with I uh, in the, the next battle. And then in some of the summary statements in chapters 10 and 11, we're told that they harem a bunch of cities. So you're left with this idea, well, well, it seems like Joshua imagines that the people did actually literally enact this. So that creates a new problem, right? Um, Having looked at Deuteronomy and thought maybe it's not meant to be taken literally, then you get to Joshua and it seems like it is. Um, and I think what's important there is to put it in context, and I'm definitely not the first to do this. I just found this scholarship helpful of, of ancient warfare rhetoric where totalizing claims about what happened are normal, and then you get the more nuanced claims about what actually happened. Um, and it turns out there are lots of survivors. All right. So that doesn't remove violence from the picture, but it changes the picture about what kind of violence it was. Um, there are other things that we need to, to think about, but basically it's a kind of, um, you know, think of it like trash talking or something where you, you claim a certain victory. And yes, you did achieve a victory, but in the, you know, maybe the subsequent chapters, you'll read that there are Canaanites running around all over the place in those areas or cities where presumably they were wiped out. Um, so I, th I think Joshua recognizes the complexity of, or, or recognizes the rhetorical nature of that show them no mercy claim, um, w when in actuality it was more like conventional warfare. Then we have, then, then we have to think about this problem of conventional warfare, but I think it's good to, which is still an issue, and the fact that God commanded it, and the fact that they're going into a land that's not theirs and and attacking and so on but it is a different kind of picture 
Um, so that's just one of the many ways that I that I think that we have to read the text closely and let it mess with our preconceptions, um, both for good or bad, mm. um, so that we we let the text uh, speak its own uncomfortable or nuanced word. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, uh, another really interesting point you made in your book is how you talked about how, you know, you've got all this Hrem language and then, you know, kill everybody, destroy everything. And then later in Joshua, it's describing these cities that are still there. And mm -hmm. it doesn't describe that as a negative thing. Can you talk about that? What do you think the text mm -hmm. is doing? Yeah, so um, if you read the end of Gen or Genesis, of Joshua chapter 11, um, it's it gives a summary statement about the conquest itself. And it says that, you know, basically not one of the the words that God had promised to Moses um, did the people fail to achieve. Everything God commanded his servant Moses, the people did. Um, they settled the whole land. And so you get this picture that like the conquest is complete. It's done. They achieved it. God was faithful to what God said they, he would do. And the people were faithful on their part. But then you get to the list of towns in Joshua 13 to 21. And it says, well, here are all the regions where they, they were not able to settle. Um, and there were, you know, iron chariots in this area and they couldn't take that. And there were all kinds of Canaanites running around over here. Or these this Canaanite city became, um, was incorporated into Israel um, and, and the the people in that city joined Israel. So, so you get this like much more messy and complex picture and none of that is presented as a failure. Um, as you, as you might is like, when you open up judges, the story suggests that like, it's because of the people's idolatry or their sin that the Canaanites were not, you know, were, were still in the land. Um, but I think I think what Joshua is doing at that point is is simply what we would have expected from Exodus, which is that God was going to slowly displace the Canaanites little by little. And it says, lest wild animals should multiply in the land. So in other words, if God came in and and like sent for like breathed fire on all the Canaanites and just toasted all of them um, and then the Israelites settled because they wouldn't be able to settle all that land immediately, wild animals would come. And at that point there were lions and, and, and bears and whatnot. Um, and, and overwhelm the land. And so, uh, the, the book kind of concedes the point that the conquest, so-called conquest was actually a process, a long process of settlement. And that actually fits with the archeological record of, of Israel's emergence an appearance in the land, um, it doesn't seem like it happened overnight or even in a year or two years. Um, we're talking more like um, maybe 100, 200 years. You know, this, <laughs> this is a long, long, long drawn out process. Um, and, and I think what, what, what's difficult for us as readers is that I think in many ways, the book of Joshua is taking a long period of settlement and condensing it into one period to tell a particular story and using ancient 
narrative conventions that were known and accepted at that time. But for us, doesn't it kind of messes with us because we think, well, his, history writing has to look this particular way. Um, otherwise, it's false, right? We have a, a kind of certain expectation we bring to the text that we have to let it be its own ancient self. And I think that's part of reading historically is allowing the text to be what it is. Yeah, totally. So you also talked about the, I guess, I don't know, you, you I, maybe I'm not getting it right, but it seems mm -hmm. like you implied that the conquest was a big a big focus of it was to attack the mm -hmm. Egyptian settlements. Can you talk about that and maybe yeah. go into that more? <clears throat> sure. So at the time when Israel is uh, described as coming into the land there in Joshua, it's the the end of what's known as the Late Bronze Age. Um, so think think like um, the 12th century, um, 13th century, 12th century BCE. Um, and at that time, the land of Canaan was more or less controlled by Egypt. And they exercised their control through proxy kings who occupied these walled cities in the land. Um, and, and, and so many of those cities, you know, we can't say in every single instance of a city that's mentioned in Joshua, but, but by and large, these cities were, were backed by Egypt. Um, and, and so you have these, these warlord proxy kings who represent imperial power. And if you look at the, at the battle reports in Joshua, the areas where Israel um, engages in conflict are primarily or actually exclusively against these walled cities and not the outlying villages. And <clears throat> I think it's because these are the, the places where Egypt had a, a stranglehold on the land of, of Canaan. Now, we should, I, I would want to nuance that a little bit and say they were losing their grip at this time. But often it's when a, a nation is or an empire is losing its grip that they get most desperate, right? They're vulnerable and desperate. So I, I think that's the situation. We also know at this time period that uh, the groups called the Sea Peoples were coming in. And that's, that's who eventually uh, became the Philistines, or at least some of the Sea Peoples became the Philistines. So the Israelites are coming in at the same time the Philistines are coming into the land because there's this crumbling imperial um, edifice that, you know, this edi the, the imperial power is crumbling in the land, creating an opportunity. Um, and so Israel seems to exploit that vulnerability. Um, but it also, I think, helps us with the question of violence, because if, if we... If we imagine if our analog for thinking about the conquest is the, um, let's say the, um, the the wars against Native Americans in the United States as it was being settled by Europeans, um, I think that's probably the wrong picture, right? Like, imagine imagine a bunch of um, let's say, uh, French outposts 
in the, or British outposts, right? Let's let's say um, a bunch of British outposts in the United States that that these early revolutionaries are trying to dismantle. Like more like the Revolutionary War is is the better equivalent than the um, the wars against Native Americans and battles against them. So so I think I think that's important to say, and and I talk about the conquest as Exodus part two in the book. And for that reason, um, they're, they're further coming out from under this imperial power. And I think with that means that they're um, not only attacking these walled cities, but also rejecting the Egyptian way or the imperial way represented by those cities and that they're the battle reports focus on the fact that Israel killed these kings um it focuses on the kings and and it also highlights the fact that they um burn chariots which are representative of you know it's it's kind of would be the equivalent of like you know just blowing up fighter jets or something in, in modern day terms um they hamstring the horses which are definitely associated with egypt at that time so they don't they don't take the weapons of the enemy they actually destroy them and i think it's because the the book is presenting the people coming in who represent a different kind of kingdom as well and and with that comes not just the rejection of idols but the rejection of idolatrous forms of power and so History is helpful for helping us see some of those dimensions that we might not see on the surface of the text. Um, and, and for that reason, I, I, I brought those details in. Hmm. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's it, it. I would say that, you know, it kind of helps our idea of like, you know, why would God command Israelites mm -hmm. to, you know, attack a bunch of people? Yeah. Because if they're moving out of Egypt and mm -hmm. these people are, you know, relatively under Egyptian control, mm -hmm. then there's going to be some resistance there no matter what. Is that a good way to put yeah. it? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think theologically, it, it's part of God's way of working. You know, it's it, God seems to work through the small, the vulnerable, the weak to achieve his kingdom purposes in the world. And that's why you have not just God bringing Israel out of Egypt, but also God calling Abram and Sarai out of Ur, out of the region of Babylon and out of Haran. So there's, God likes to work through the unsuspecting, the kind of forms of power in the world to achieve his kingdom purposes. And then he establishes Israel in this land that um, is, is a place that could never become an empire. Uh, and this is something Cindy Parker uh, I don't know if you know her, but she's uh, she teaches a lot on history and geography of the Bible. But she points out that, um, you know, if you think about some of the great empires of ba uh, uh, imperial cities like Babylon or Nineveh or or um, you know Thebes, they they're situated on major rivers, and so if you have a major river, you can become a superpower because you've got a reliable source of irrigation for agriculture you also have a means by which you can trade and become economically prosperous israel didn't have that especially when you had the philistines on the coast 
they were up in the highlands and yeah, they had a little river, the Jordan, but that was way the heck down in the Jordan river Valley. And, and not like you could trade with another kingdom from that. Cause it just goes up to the sea of Galilee more or less. So they, but they were situated in a place where they could be an influencing nation. So they could, they could influence the world by being who they were called to be, but they could never dominate the world. And I think, I think that's because they were a crossroads more than a, um, a, a place from which power could be uh, augmented and then extended throughout the earth. Hmm. Now, you mentioned that not all <laughs> of the people that Israelites attacked mm -hmm. were under Egyptian control. Um, mm -hmm. How, I mean, if that's your theory that that's the reason why they were attacked and, mm -hmm. and not all of them were under Egyptian control, that kind of seems like to be a defeater to your theory. Like, how do you deal with that idea? Yeah, so uh, we, we definitely know that some of these cities were. Um, well, the story of Joshua presents it in, it's really, really interesting. Um, with the exception of, <clears throat> well, I mentioned two exceptions and one of them might not be. <laughs> with the exception of Jericho and I, all of the battles that Israel fought were defensive. Hmm. Um, and so what happens is the Gibeon, and, and it all has to do with the Gibeonites. Um, so the, the Gibeonites join with Israel. They sneak into the covenant um, because they heard what happened at Ai and Jericho. And so they're, they're situated in the Benjamin Plateau between Judah, what becomes Judah and Israel. Um, they're at a strategic location and they know that like they're, they might be the next city. So, so they, they join with Israel and they're a more major power, at least locally speaking. And when the Kings in the South and the Kings in the North hear about this, they go to attack Gibeon. And then Israel has to defend Gibeon against these other Canaanite uh, kingdoms. And so um, the, the majority of the conquest actually happens as defensive battles in defense of Canaanites, um, which is a, a remarkable twist in the story. These people who snuck in, you know, almost like pulling a, um, I don't know the exact equivalent, but I think of like the Exodus story and how that began with Shifra and Pua's deception and, and sneaking, um, you know, not throwing the baby boys into the Nile and preserving their lives. So you have these sneaky Gibeonites and that kicks off the conquest. And so the means by which it actually happens is, is in terms of um, these defensive battles. So whether they were all Egyptian backed, I can't say for sure. We know a bunch of them were, we know Egypt was, was um, exercising control over this area. Um, and and we know that some of these kingdoms banded together to attack Israel's new covenant partner, the Canaanites. <laughs> um, and so that's that's how it kicks off then. Hmm. Very fascinating. So, I mean, what do we have in the Bible? I mean, if, if anything, I think you mentioned some. Um, maybe you can just quickly repeat. What do we have in the Bible that <laughs> implies that maybe they were attacking them for because they're Egyptian? Oh, um so, so most of that comes from out, uh, historical um, information of like what we know of those cities, uh, historically speaking. We do we do know from scripture though that 
uh, Egypt was campaigning up into Israel, um, you know, quite, quite early. Um, and then all the way up to like, you know, think about, um, Josiah who goes to confront Pharaoh Nico, who's, who's coming up and, uh, again, another campaign up into the region of Israel. Um, but the, our main early evidence is, uh, group of texts called the Amarna letters, um, from a city, um, well, it was the imperial capital for at one point called El Marna. And, and it, there was a whole bunch of Akkadian text, um, letters that were correspondence between Canaanite Kings and Egypt. And so we, we know we actually have like several hundred letters between Canaan and Egypt from just before the time Israel went into the land. Um, we also know that several pharaohs had campaigns up into Israel in the 1100s. <clears throat> um, and, and one of them is the, the first extra biblical reference to Israel. So uh, Pharaoh Merneptah campaigned up in the region. And he says that he laid Israel waste and its, its seed or its offspring were no more. So there you get that totalizing rhetoric, right? Now, of course, they did survive, just like uh, is said of the Canaanite populations in Joshua. So, so from from uh, this extra biblical literature, we have a picture on what was happening in the in the land at that at that time. Hmm. So, um, just so I can understand you correctly, mm -hmm. um, you you don't really see anything in the text specifically that says that the reason they were attacking them was because Egyptian. Egyptian because they're Egyptian control or whatever. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make that point um, explicitly. So that that idea is is something that where I think we need extra biblical resources to help fill out the picture because it was, <clears throat> I think, in part maybe assumed by the text and and in part maybe just the distance from the event itself, mm. or that memory had of of why those particular cities were attacked had had more or less faded. Yeah. Well, also, you, I mean, obviously, you talk in your book about how, like, there's a lot going on with the text <clears> in regards <throat> to, like, specifically the first few chapters where it's talking <clears> about <throat> how, you know, uh, the the first two things that God tells them to do didn't even have anything to do with weapons. Yeah. And all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so obviously, something's happening. Um, so while we're on that, could you actually talk about that? I don't know if you, or maybe go into detail, like what's with this weird, like, no weapons language, even mm -hmm. though you tell them to go to war? And why do you think the writer's talking about that? Yeah, so um, if we put Joshua in the genre of ancient conquest literature, where that helps us a bit, you know, with those rhetorical points I mentioned. Um, but I think we also have to let, let the book itself mess with that category, and it certainly does. And I think it's playing with some of the the language of warfare but sort of taking that language and turning it in a different direction so when the when the book begins it has god sort of giving joshua this pep talk he's supposed to give to the people and you know you're about to go into this land i'm going to give it to you you're going to settle it and here's what you need to know to do that successfully and you expect some sort of like 
maybe the call from Deuteronomy, show them no mercy, you know, drive your sword through them all. Don't, don't draw back from that. But instead he says, meditate on Torah day and night. <clears throat> so the people, their strength was found in being Torah meditators. And I think that's a little clue in the part of the writer about how, how we're supposed to think about, um, the implementation of those commands from Deuteronomy, that um, we're not to take a thoughtless approach to them. So a thoughtless approach would say, well, Deuteronomy says, show them no mercy. We're going to go show them no mercy. Well, chapter two then has a Torah situation that we need to think about because the spies go into the land and they meet Rahab. Now, Rahab, they go from the spies set out from a town called Shittim, which back in the book of Numbers is where the Israelites had, uh, as, as some translations have it, played the harlot with the daughters of Moab, and they fell into idolatry. So you have the theme of harlotry um, and idolatry with these women brought together. So here the spies go from Shittim to Jericho, and they meet Rahab, who's a woman who's a prostitute. So all of your alarm bells should be going off. Mm -hmm. But it turns out she provides cover for the spies. She redirects the king away from them. And she also utters this sort of confession that Yahweh is, is the God of all the earth and has given this land to Israel. So she subverts our expectations. So then we're in a situation as a reader, and you know the spies are as well, well, the Torah says this, what do we do with Rahab? Mm. She's a Canaanite. And um, she seemed to fit all the expectations, but then she subverts them. What does a good reading of Torah require? And I think a Torah meditator will say there are, there are weightier and lesser matters of the law, you know, just like Jesus teaches. And so they end up making a covenant with her and her family uh, to preserve their lives. <clears throat> and they don't know her family, right? Um, but she incorporates them and herself into the covenant people. And I think the book wants us to see that as a good reading of the Torah, hmm. that, that Torah meditation leads us to this sort of response to a person like Rahab. Just like later on in the canon, a good reading of the Torah leads us to recognize God's chesed, his loyal, loving kindness at work in the person of, of Ruth, even though she's a Moabite. And Moabites, according to the law, were not to be in the assembly of Israel, according to Deuteronomy 23. So I think a lot of stories in the Bible are designed with the law in mind, um, but in a way that not, it doesn't subvert the law, but it, it asks us to meditate on the law and to think carefully about it in light of God's character and the whole story of the Torah and so on. Hmm. And, and so that's what I think Joshua's doing right up front. So that tells us, so if, if the book's doing that in Joshua too, this, there's more going on here than meets the eye. It's wanting us to ask questions about who's in and who's out. Uh, about where the lines between good and evil run. Hmm. And then as you continue on in the book, 
um, and I talk about the use of the sword, the first reference to the sword is um, when Joshua says to the people, all right, you're about to, to go into the land now. So take, and the Hebrews literally flint swords, and circumcise yourselves. Now, if you read Genesis 34, you know that Simeon and Levi tricked the Shechemites into circumcising every male in the town so that when they were sore, they could slaughter all of them. So to, to circumcise every male in Israel in enemy territory is extremely vulnerable. Hmm. But that's because it's more important to remain, to bear the sign of the covenant, to meditate on Torah day and night, um, than to worry about weapons and, and the normal channels of power. And then the people go in and they, so they circumcise themselves. They celebrate this big Passover, you know, so none of this is about battle preparedness or about taking up weapons of war. Um, and then, you know, how they take Jericho, they surround it um, seven times. Uh, eventually they march around it for seven days and seven, seventh day, seven times. And, and then <clears throat> uh, the city walls just fall down. And that's that's like a worship service almost. Um, so so you have worship, you have um, circumcision, sign of the covenant, Passover, meditating on Torah. These are the means by which these people are being formed, and not by the kind of normal symbols of power. Yeah, and you in the book you also contrasted that with how Harim is like you know highlighting. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can, I can hear you. It just sort of broke up a little bit there for a second. Oh, okay. I think we're good now. Um, <laughs> okay. Can you, can you tell me? Are we good? Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so you talked in your book about how, like, there's almost contrast of you have this rim language, kill everybody. And then mm -hmm. on the other hand, it's like completely surrender yourself. But that kind of mixes in with how you you don't want to have any other gods so like mm -hmm. like not necessarily kill everybody but but certain moves or something like that is is that kind of what you're getting at there yeah i lost the last part of the the comment i'm um, just because it broke up a bit but um I, I think one of the things the book is doing is <clears throat> highlighting the fact that um well, okay, well, I'll say one thing it doesn't highlight. One thing it doesn't highlight is the wickedness of the Canaanites. And that's a little bit surprising because uh, a lot of people think that like the reason they had to go in and wipe them out was because they were so wicked. And other parts of the Pentateuch do suggest that, right? But Joshua doesn't. Mm -hmm. And and what it does say, though, with regard to idols is that Israel was idolatrous. So at the end of the book, Joshua in his farewell speech to Israel says, okay, Israel, put away the idols that are among you. And, and so he actually tells them that twice. So at the beginning of the book, you have this people who are uncircumcised, which is shocking because, you know, here they are, the people of the covenant, and they don't even bear the sign of the covenant. And at the end of the book, you have this people who are idolatrous and have to put away the idols that are in their own midst. And I think that's a little window into what the book is is trying to engender for its readers. Like, how is this book meant to be taken up by Israel 
um, during a time when there were no more Canaanites around for them to wipe out, right? That wasn't a possibility when the early readers of the final form of Joshua are reading it. Um, so I don't think the book is written with a view to killing Canaanites. It's written with a view to Israel rooting out the idolatry that's within them and to them um, recommitting themselves to covenant fidelity. So, so I think that's a, a important theme in all of this. Yeah, and something you talk about in your book was, I mean, it seems very clear that the text was written after it happened, a lot yeah. after it happened. Mm -hmm. uh, it talked about, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was like, um, in those days, long time ago, basically, yeah. <laughs> and and it's just like, well, yeah, I mean, that definitely seems uh, a yeah. long time ago then. Yeah, there are a number of, uh, t um, like, such and such is the case until this day right. <clears throat> statements in there. So that tells you it's written from a later perspective, but doesn't say how late. Hmm. Um, but we also know that some of the cities mentioned in the, in the um, settlement section were not even occupied until later in the iron age. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's, again, it's telescoping, condensing a, a broad yeah. period of time. And also literarily Joshua is it's stitched together using phrasing that brings coherence to Joshua all the way through Kings. So in other words, its final form couldn't have been before the end of the book of Kings, mm -hmm. which is exilic, mm -hmm. you know, minimum uh, during the exile. Right. So early readers of the final form of Joshua, it's not to say none of it goes back earlier, but the final form are either in exile or post exile thinking about how do we take up this story for us today just like we try to ask that question as well and i think it's a book that commends utter loyalty to yahweh and the rooting out of the idols that are among us hmm. very interesting okay so i know you don't have a lot more time um <laughs> you know feel free to go in as much as you want mm -hmm. but the giants uh mm. you, you it's very similar for you <clears throat> to michael heiser that a lot of people might have heard of mm -hmm. but it's still different could you talk about that yeah, so <laughs> it's an interesting, I would say, subplot in the book. Um, so in uh, Genesis 6, like we talked about that before, the, the Nephilim, right, um, show up in Genesis 6 who are related to, uh, it's not clear exactly how related, but they're related to the offspring of, of the sons of God and the daughters of humans. Um, and, and if you sort of piece together different biblical texts, you can see that the, um, sorry, one sec. Sorry, let me just, uh, I just need a little water. <laughs> okay. Um, so that the, the Nephilim. Uh, from Genesis 6, some of their offspring are the Anakim. Um, they're giant people. Um, and, and they show up in numbers in the land of Canaan. And they're clearly occupying some of the cities. And the spies go in in numbers. And they're like, they're everywhere. You know, every city is, you know, they, they dominate. We're like grasshoppers to them. And they're probably exaggerating. But they did have an idea that, that there are these giant races in the land. Deuteronomy talks about different groups of giants like the Zamzamim and the Emim and the Rephaim. Um, 
I think there are one or two others. And the Anakim. Um, well, Joshua has, uh, in the summary statement in jo Joshua 11, when he's talking about when, or when the narrator is summarizing the, the campaign in the, in the south, in the hill country, it talks about Joshua going in and, and essentially driving out the giants who are in the cities. Um, and there are a couple of interesting things about these giants um, that uh, I, th I think are important. It, it's not just that they were big. Um, it's that they represent two things. One is that they were thought to be semi-divine beings. Um, and also their, their big supersized bodies are associated with royalty. And, and so here you have these royal figures who are thought to be these, these you know, super warriors going back to the days of old. Um, and they're being defeated in these cities as a kind of summary statement about what the campaigns were about. Um, so I, th I think what's fascinating there is that it's a little bit of a window into the idea that <clears throat> this battle in Joshua is not just against flesh and blood. Um, there's a kind of principality and powers at work in the land that Israel was also seeking to defeat. And I think I don't want to push that point too hard as if like that's the only way or the dominant way even that Joshua wants us to read the conquest. But I do think it's an interesting subplot that is sort of brought to the surface at this key point in the the conquest summary account. Mm -hmm. So there's more to get into there, but that's a little kind of sketch of, mm -hmm. of why I think it's interesting. And in, and in speaking to the issue of violence, it's interesting because um, it, it, it suggests that there's a spiritual component to the forces Israel was confronting. Mm -hmm. There's an imperial component and there's a spiritual component. And I think both of those are important to recognize. Um, again, I don't want to overplay that point um, as if, oh, that's just spiritual forces and that kind of um, makes the problem go away. But I do think it's an interesting uh, and uh, point worth mentioning. Yeah, really, really cool. All right, mm -hmm. everyone, make sure to check out Dr. Lunge's book here. It's really, really great. Uh, what is the name of it? Where's the best place to get it? So Flood and Fury, Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God. And uh, it's published by IVP. You can get it on their website or on Amazon or wherever you like to get books. Um, maybe your local bookstore, you could ask them to get it, or your library, you could <laughs> ask them to get it. Um, so yeah. Uh, also, you can get it on Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D, and oh, yeah. it's like a subscription. It's like $10 a month, but they also give you a free month, so you can get the free month, you can read it, and, mm. then, and then you can stop doing it. Cool. All <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, Dr. Litch, it's been awesome. Everyone go check out that, and also his podcast. This has been great. I hope you have a great rest of your night. Thanks so much, Zach. I enjoyed talking with you. Awesome. This has been great. All right. Have a good one. <laughs> Thanks so much. Sorry, I got uh, my throat went dry there. It's like, oh, oh. you're totally fine. <laughs>